summer. How many of you guys are excited to get into God's Word? If you're new here, we love His Word so much that we preach uh, verse by verse, uh, line by line, precept upon precept. And we just, we are all about God's Word. And if you're not new here today, you probably don't think I can get through this message today, but I can. I promise. It's a big text. It's a big narrative, so we might handle it a little different than we normally do, but we are going to get through it. So, all right, here we go. So we're in Acts chapter 10 today, a very, very, very key strategic chapter in that simply stated, this is the chapter which the gospel goes officially to the Gentiles. Now, that may not really seem like a a big deal to some of you, but in the early church, the believers were first Jewish. And the racial prejudice that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles was enormous. Far greater than anything, you heard me right, far greater than anything that we have uh, experienced in our world today. This was intense. It was an intense hatred and there was a huge division. In fact, the Orthodox Jewish male uh, had this prayer. He said, I thank you, God, that I was not born a dog, a woman, and or a Gentile. So that kind of gives you a little perspective, a little insight on the, in the mind of uh, the Jewish man in those days. Now, don't, don't know about you, but it seems like it may not be a good idea to bring these two groups together. I don't know, just speaking from a human perspective, uh, logically, it doesn't seem like it would be a really good idea to bring these two groups together. Seems, seems like they've got a little bit of a history. Seems like they're tr- it's trying to mix oil with water, and maybe, maybe it just won't work, right? But God had prophesied long before. In fact, in Hosea uh, chapter 2, verse 23, he said, I will have mercy on those who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, Gentiles, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. Love it, love it. In fact, again, in, in John chapter 4, 23 through 24, it says, but the hour is coming, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Let me tell you something. The salvation of souls and the worship of God is of the spirit, by the spirit, and in the spirit. Taking notes, you write that down. I'll say it again. The salvation of souls and the worship of God is of the Spirit, by the Spirit, and in the Spirit. All right, I understand Jesus was a Jew and the early Christians were Jewish, yet the gospel is for the entire world. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. I don't care if you're Asian, African, Spanish, European, the gospel is for everyone. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 2, 28 through 29, he said, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So the church, listen to me, the church has a mandate. Jesus said that we're, we're to go into all the world and preach the gospel to everyone. Everyone. He told them in the book of Acts before he ascended to heaven that when the Spirit of God comes on you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost uttermost parts of the earth. They hadn't really gone out officially at this point to preach to the Gentiles. They hadn't really gone out officially to welcome them into the church. They didn't realize that the church was a new humanity. 
It wasn't just Jews, it wasn't just Gentiles, it wasn't just men, it, it wasn't just women, but it was men, women, Jews, Gentiles, all races, all people. Why? Because we're all one in Jesus Christ. You know, a great parallel passage is in Ephesians chapter two. We don't have time to look at it today, but in this particular passage in Ephesians, this changed the trajectory of my life. It was the basis for God calling both myself and my wife back to the United States because God was calling us to pastor a church in which all people would be one. One church with many cultures. One church, a glimpse of what heaven would look like. Changed my life forever. Took a seminary course. I was just trying to knock out a a B minus I would have been happy with. If I could have just knocked out a B minus, I'd be cool. And, and yet this class completely changed my life forever when I had to write on this particular chapter. 15 page paper, hated doing it. But man, it changed my life. Because in that chapter in Ephesians, Paul talks about how God has taken the Gentile and the Jew and broken down the wall and made one new humanity. One new man, that's the church. The church. Church, that we're one, Jew and Gentile. We, we have an equal standing before a holy and righteous God. The church is one. Spanish, African, European, Asian, the church is one. And today in Acts chapter 10, we, we get to see this. We, we, we've got the story of the conversion of Cornelius, a Roman military man, a centurion. But listen to me, I need you to see something today. Something in this text that's really important, I don't want you to miss it. Because you and I, we get to see one conversion, but we're gonna see more than one conversion. We don't just see one conversion, we actually see two conversions in our text. We see the conversion of Cornelius and the conversion of Peter the Apostle. Oh yeah, I said it. And I wanted to, I wanted to get you guys scratching your head a little bit because if you know your Bible, you're thinking, wait, Peter's already saved. You're absolutely right, he is saved. But he experiences a conversion, a conversion from legalism to grace. And I'm praying this over my church, over every single person in my church. I'm praying this over the churches in America. I am praying that we are delivered from a spirit of legalism to a spirit of grace. I am. Now, Peter's still a little hesitant. He isn't ready to totally just accept non-Jewish people. You know, at least Samaritans are sort of related historically to the Jewish faith, but to have someone who is a complete Gentile come to faith in Jesus, Peter wasn't ready for it. But God's gonna get him. God has a way of getting us, doesn't he? God has a way of preparing us. He can change us. Isn't that amazing? We can be changed through the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit can absolutely change us. And I'm telling you, the church, not just this church, I'm speaking about the church in general in 2023 needs some change. So chapter 10, it's a really important chapter because it addresses all of this. It's the first Gentile conversion in the Bible. And remember, Jesus told his disciples, I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel. All the world. And you know, there's sometimes we read things in the Bible, we hear the Lord say things, and we're, we're like, okay, sure, yeah. Sounds good, I get it. But when it's really what he means, no, I mean like all the world, Jesus said, all the world. I love all the world. We, we, we sometimes we just don't get it, we don't grasp it. God says I'm gonna save anyone who's gonna call on my name. 
And when it came down to it, Peter was a little hesitant still. And we, we're gonna see this in our text today. So I wanna back up just one verse. I'm gonna look at Acts chapter nine, verse 43, because it introduces us to Acts chapter 10. It says, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a Tanner. <laughs> we're talking about Peter here. Peter. Peter stayed many days in Joppa with one Simon a Tanner. Joppa's on the seacoast. It's over to the west of Jerusalem. It's right along the seacoast. And, and we said this last week, but a Tanner was a man that would use the skins of animals to create canvases and make tents with them. He was one who skinned animals. So it was really an unclean kind of profession. Okay? I don't know what kind of colognes they had back then, but this guy would have needed it. He would have needed some good right guard, all right? He would have smelled. They couldn't skin animals and still kind of be set apart for God and worship in the temple or, or go to the synagogue and things like that. They just couldn't do it. So Peter, in a sense, he's already kind of doing stuff that would have been a little bit radical as far as their sanctity for the Jews are concerned. But, the, but, but it's interesting because he's, he's with this man named Simon who's a tanner in the city of Joppa, and all of this comes into play when Cornelius gets directions to, to call for Peter to come to him and share the gospel. So read with me Acts chapter 1 through 2. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. I want to stop for a minute. I probably won't read through all of the scripture today. You've got it in your face. Corey's going to per you got it in your face. Hopefully you <laughs> hopefully you do. And Corey's going to put it up on the screen because there's so much and we already had it read. We're just going to kind of systematically go through it. But a centurion of of what was called the Italian cohort. So the Roman army was compromised of legions and a Roman legion had between 5,000 and 6,000 men. Legions were then compromised of cohorts. And in the cohort, 600 men per cohort, you had centurions who, who were officers who were in charge of 100 men. So there were 60 centurions in every legion of the Roman army. And history, history tells us that it was the Roman centurion that really was the backbone of the Roman discipline in the army and the success of the Roman army. So they're a pretty big deal. Uh, in fact, I've read some history books that say that uh, they didn't really want the centurions to be married or have a family because that would mean that they, would, they, would, they couldn't be as committed to the, to the Roman army as they would want them to be. They were, some reports of centurions is that they were adventurous go-getters, fearless, unafraid, but at the same time they had a very steady character. They were very level-headed, very stable in their personalities. They were trained that way, and they were trained that way so they could, could face a variety of any kind of subject or situation, circumstance. And so there was a ruler of 100 men, a centurion, of what is called the Italian cohort. Now, in Acts 3 through 8, we, we get a little glimpse of this man. He's a good man. Okay, it says a lot in here, right? It says that he feared God with all his household, gave alms generously, to the people, prayed continually to God. In fact, it's in verse three it says, at the ninth hour he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter, because he's lodging with one Simon a Tanner, who's at the house by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants 
and a devout soldier from among these who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So a lot could be said and pointed out about Cornelius and his devotion, but I want to get right to the point. The point is this, that he was devout, he was religious, he was a man who prayed, he believed in the God of Israel, but don't miss this, he needed to be saved. Okay? He, needed to be, he needed the gospel. Cornelius was a, a devout man, but unsaved. He feared God with all of his household, but he was unsaved. He prayed to God, but was unsaved. All of these things were wonderful and definitely noticed by God, but they did not save the guy. Okay? Today, these things don't save you either. Being religious does not constitute salvation. I'm going to say that again. Being religious does not constitute salvation has to be an acceptance of Jesus and the work he did on the cross in order to be saved. So even though he believed in God, he wasn't saved. And in the book of James, it says that faith without works is dead. James mentions that even demons believe in God and tremble, but obviously they're not saved. So believing in God or having correct belief doesn't save anyone. It's faith in Jesus Christ who died and was buried and rose again that saved somebody. That's what saves you. I don't care if you were baptized as a child. I don't care if you were confirmed by some church. That doesn't save you. Faith in Jesus and Jesus alone is what saves you. I don't care if you're a really good person. So was Cornelius. He was great. Look at all these wonderful things he did. Very disciplined. It didn't save him. God has to send Peter to him so he can hear the message of salvation. You know, it was to Nicodemus, he was a religious Jew in John chapter 3 that Jesus says, Nicodemus, you have to be born again if you're going to see the kingdom of God. Sometimes we get the idea that, oh man, they're, they're religious, they don't need God, they don't need Christianity, I don't need to preach to them, they're very religious, it's possible to be very, very religious and yet be very lost, okay? I need, it, the church needs to understand this, this is why doctrine is huge, this is why we do what we do. I don't get up every Sunday because I'm arrogant. Get up, I'm so humbled by the fact that I absolutely need Jesus. That without the Jesus and the grace of the cross, I am nothing. I don't deserve heaven, I don't deserve grace, and I don't deserve mercy. And neither does anybody else, and that's why this message is just so important. Jesus said, I'm the only way to heaven, the only way. You know, John Wesley, he's a really great example from church history. Uh, he came to America to convert the Indians. He left, he went back to England dejected and discouraged, he, and he wrote in his journal, I went to America to convert the Indians, but who shall convert me? On his trip back to England, he was on a ship with some, some other believers, they were called the Moravians, you've heard me talk about them before, because the famous quote comes out of the Moravian movement, I'm gonna preach Jesus, I'm gonna preach Jesus, die and be forgotten, but Jesus will be remembered. That's, that's, my, that's my life goal. One day I won't be remembered at all, but Jesus will. I'm gonna preach Jesus all my life and one day die and be forgotten, but not Jesus. So on his trip back, he's with these, these uh, early evangelical Christians. They were born again, they loved Jesus, and a storm hit the ship. And Wesley was observing these Moravians. And he noticed, man, they've got incredible peace. They're not afraid to die. He was worried, he was scared, he was unsure of his salvation, even though he was quite devout, he fasted, he prayed, he read his Bible. In fact, he was returning from being a missionary. When he got back to England, he wanted to know more about these Moravians. He wanted to know what they had that he didn't have. So he made his way one night in London to a Moravian meeting. He slipped in the back late, and the minister was reading from uh, 
Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. He made reference to the fact that you can be saved or justified by faith and trusting Jesus Christ only. That's it. After that meeting that night, after hearing the gospel for the first time, he said, he said, I did trust Jesus Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. And he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. Now that was the conversion of John Wesley. And of course, that began the Methodist church and the Methodist movement. It was incredible work. God used him in England at the same time George Whitfield was in America preaching the gospel. And there just was an incredible revival. So the, the Bible seems pretty clear on this. A person can be very devout, very pious, very religious, but at the same time, very lost. Okay, and this was the case with Cornelius. It's believed that he was called a proselyte of the gate. And all that means is that he hadn't fully entered into Judaism, but believed in the God of Israel. He was reading scripture. He was following after him as best that he knew how. And obviously, he, he would be ostracized a little bit by the Jews and wouldn't be, wouldn't be able to fully enter in, but he was, he was looking for something. He was searching. He had a hungry heart, and God always meets a hungry heart. God always reaches a hungry heart. The Bible says that if you seek him with all your heart, you will find him. Those who really want to know God are going to find him. God will come and reveal himself to them and meet them in their need. And we see this in this story. It's one, it's one long story that actually goes into chapter 11 providential hand of God in orchestrating Cornelius's conversion and preparing Peter to preach the gospel to him. And one more observation about the story so far, and I just love this part of the story, so take mental note of this today. So here you have Cornelius, a very respected, very educated guy who needs Peter to give him a word from the Lord. Peter, not so educated, fisherman, coming from two different worlds, but Cornelius needs Peter. And I find that interesting. I really do. I want you to think about this. It's a little ironic that the Lord is giving this message directly to Cornelius, and yet the Lord tells Cornelius to go find Peter. Why? Because he has a word for him. I mean, if I was Cornelius, <laughs> I probably would question God. I might say something like this. God, you're already here. You're already talking to me through this angel right now. You might as well give me the message. Why do I have to go looking for some dude named Peter? to come here to my house to preach to me when you are right here talking to me. Why do I have to do that, right? I mean, it makes sense, kind of interesting to me. And hear me out, church. Hear me out this morning because isn't it amazing how God chooses others? Often people who are not like us to bless, encourage, and teach us. Because <laughs> we only hang out, and sometimes we miss it because we only hang out with people of our same culture. We miss that blessing and that teaching. I'm just saying. I'm not, I'm not stretching the text too much. It's right there. All right? Now the story continues through Acts 10, builds up this anticipation. What in the world is this message that God has for Cornelius and for you and for me today through the mouth of a rough around the edges guy like Peter? Acts 9 through 10, and like I said, I'll read some and some I won't, but it says the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry. I'm so glad that I'm not the only one who starts praying and gets hungry. <laughs> Happened to Peter too. He became hungry, wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. Kind of like what some of you guys do on a Sunday morning when I start preaching. <laughs> Just... Just teasing. Why is it even here? Why is this part of the story here? Why is it important? Well, a couple things that 
God wants us to pay attention to. Look, if, if you look real closely at verse 9, you underline, as they were on their journey, and then underline, Peter went up to pray. And I get it. You and I have this advantage of knowing what happens in, in, in this chapter or this story, but you need to remember, Peter didn't. He didn't know. So we, we know how the story ends, but Peter, he did not. He had no clue what was going on, and that's huge for us because it's such an important connection for us to make. We have one group of people obeying God and moving to hear a word, but God is already moving. God's already beginning without, without him having any awareness of what's happening to prepare Peter to deliver that word. So hear me out. God is at work all around us, even when we don't see it. Do you hear me? God is at work all around us even when we don't see it. Now, I've had enough experiences with the Lord that I know he's working even if I don't see any evidence of it. Evidence of it. So I, I, I encourage myself sometimes by reminding my, myself of different times in Scripture or in my own life where I saw his answer after an extended period of, of seeming inactivity, really. And you guys could all probably relate. You've been there. But you guys need to remember this. From the Garden of Eden, God promised Adam and Eve that a redeemer would come to defeat Satan. It was thousands of years before that redeemer came. But when the fullness, Galatians 4, 4 through 5, says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. God was at work all those years preparing people for the coming of his son. Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years before the son of God promised them arrived. Why, why, did, why did God make them wait so long? I don't know, maybe to, to strengthen their faith. I, I don't know. David was anointed king years before he actually uh, came to the throne. Meanwhile, he had to flee for his life while the current king Saul was chasing him, trying to kill him. Daniel and others, they were in exile in Babylon for 70 years before God brought them back to Israel. And Hebrews 11 lists several more who saw God do great things after long years. Some of them even says this. It says in verse 13, Hebrews 11, died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. They trusted God would answer and bring about his will, even though they never saw the answer in their lifetime. Now you gotta understand the text today that we're looking at Here's this awesome story where Peter's about to get to see it. But he doesn't know he's about to get to see it. He's living by faith. He understands that God is at work all around us, even when we don't see it. And so I love, I love our story today, because it shows that, that while he's teaching us one thing, he's already moving and preparing the other people that are involved. He's a sovereign, all-knowing God that we can trust. He's so much bigger than us. He understands and sees things that we do not see, and, and we recognize that... that uh, we just need to stop sometimes and recognize that God is so much bigger and greater than we are. And he is a God that we can trust. He is working and moving all the time. Notice that God began to work and reveal things to Peter even before Peter knew what was going on. Here's the other thing that I think we have to note. Peter was actively practicing disciplines of his faith. He went up to pray. It was about noon, the text says. This is one of those three blocks of time that any good Jew would practice a regular discipline of prayer. And as followers of Jesus, listen to me, the goal of spiritual discipline is to bring us into a closer relationship with God. And this is not about legalistically following a set of rules. No, instead we discipline ourselves, we train ourselves for the purpose of godliness. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy. 
And this helps us become the people God created us to be, and it helps us to stay emotionally and mentally balanced. So Peter is, is just going about his daily routine. He's a disciplined man. He has spiritual disciplines, right? And he's practicing his spiritual disciplines, and God uses it to teach him a lesson. Now remember, this is Peter. Peter the fisherman that Jesus went, on, went, went to and said, hey, follow me, and I'm gonna make you fishers of men. Same Peter. So that same guy who had a, the audacity to say, if that's Jesus walking in the water, well, here I come. <laughs> this is the same Peter who defended Jesus in the garden, and as soon as somebody came to his master, he pulled out a sword, cut off his ear because he stood for the defense of those he loved. This is that same Peter who denied Jesus three times. This is that same Peter who went to Jesus in shame, and Jesus said, feed my sheep, Peter. This is that same guy. So we all know he's not a perfect person, Bible's so clear about that. But he's a guy who Jesus promised that he was gonna use him in a mighty way to grow and establish his church. This is that same Peter, even though Peter had seen so much and experienced so much and had been used by God so much, even already in the first 10 chapters of Acts, God still has these things that Peter needed, or, or these things that Peter needed to learn. Even in this good standing, God desired to mature Peter's faith and to mature Peter's understanding of the gospel. Now, I don't know how long you've been following Jesus. For me, I, it's been 30-something years because I got saved when I was very young. I was a boy when I gave my life to Jesus, when I understood what the gospel was. I was just a child, and I've been pursuing Jesus ever since. And here's what I know. I'm no more saved today than I was as a little boy. But, it, but the Lord has helped me to grow. And as the Lord has helped me to grow, I understand the gospel so much more today than I did when I was young. And I understand so much more about theology. I, I understand so much more about the Bible and his word. Now, does that mean I'm more saved? No. No, we, we have a word for this, though, in, in church language, or what I like to call Christianese. Okay, we call this the process of sanctification. How many of you know it's a journey, right? We know when we have kids, they grow. Thank God, right? That's why we bring them to the doctor and they check all their vitals and make sure they're growing. Same is true spiritually. We're supposed to grow, and that's a process. In fact, the Bible teaches us the three tenses of salvation. All right, we get this from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 through 2, but really, uh, the three tenses are past tense, present tense, and future tense. Past tense is, I've been saved from the penalty of sin, that's justification. The moment you put your faith in Jesus and you ask for the forgiveness of your sins, you are, you are saved from the penalty of sin. Then there's the present tense. I'm being saved from the power of sin. That's sanctification. That's where we're all right now. And some of you are gonna say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good, man, I'm perfect. All I gotta do is talk to your spouse. <laughs> all right, or your kids, <laughs> or your siblings. But then there's the, the third, the future tense. I will be saved. This is called glorification. I will be saved from the presence of sin one day. All right? And this is one of those sanctifying moments in the ministry and the life of Peter. He is growing in his knowledge of Jesus, and that knowledge is going to change the way he thinks and acts. Okay, that's what's supposed to happen in our Christian life. That's how it works. We're supposed to be growing. We've never arrived here, okay? You ever been around somebody who goes into a, a meeting and it's like, man, this guy thinks he's just arrived? He just thinks he's God's gift to humanity. He's, he's unwilling to learn, he's unteachable. It's not how we're supposed to be as Christians. 
All right, Peter already loved God. He was being used of God, was positioned right where God wanted him to be. Although he was disciplined and he was praying and he was doing all the things he needed to do, God still had lessons he needed to learn and to help him grow and to help him understand more the fullness of the gospel. And so for him, this means, Peter, you've got to acknowledge some things in your life that have to change. We all have moments like that. Hopefully, the more we read the Bible, the more we study God's word, we have these moments, wow, there's so much that I need to change. You know, I, I learned so much at Bible college. It was this interesting experience because I showed up to Bible college thinking I was like the Michael Jordan of ministry and God just humbled me so much because it's like, wow, I really don't know anything. There's so much I don't know. But then as you study God's word, there's these moments I used to have at Bible college. The more I studied God's word, the more I'd feel unprepared, unqualified. I can't do this and I'd go in broken with a professor and I'd be like, I think God made a mistake calling me like I, I the more I learn about the Bible the more I realize there's so much I have to change and I remember Professor York he was my missions professor uh, I, his response it just I'll never forget it because he said Justin you're in you're you're in the right place then it's where God wants you to be <laughs> we're always supposed to be growing but we we just struggle sometimes with change we don't want to change or we don't want to put ourselves in that pers- in that light it reminds me of the old joke how many church members is take to change a light bulb you guys ever heard this change why would we change anything <laughs> sometimes we are notoriously awful at this aren't we why because we get comfortable we get comfortable in what we know isn't that true And I get it, there's safety, there's security in what's familiar, but Peter had to realize, hey, there are some things about even your understanding of the gospel that are incomplete, and I desire to reveal that to you and to help you grow. That's one of these moments right here. For him, it was some of the ritual practice of the Jewish faith. God was trying to help him, help his people understand the gospel influencing the Gentiles and these kinds of traditions and customs they, they weren't gonna fit in their culture. And so he was trying to help them understand how those things needed to change, but Peter was obstinate. He was stubborn. Again, this is why I love Peter. I, 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 every time I'm, if you're ever discouraged, don't read Paul's writings. Don't read the epistles, because Paul was really, he was good. He was humble, though. But Peter, man, what a goofball. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder, God, did you choose Peter just because he was such a goofball? to help all of us feel better about ourselves. Like, one day I wanna, wanna ask, I wanna say, Peter, thank you for all the times you messed up because you just, you, you helped me realize God's grace in my own life. If God could use Peter, he could use anyone, amen? Peter had his own conclusions. He had his own criteria and he, he had his own perspective on life. Don't we all do that, by the way? <laughs> we come to a text with our own perspective. It's amazing what we do. We'll come to the text and we'll already in our own mind have something, our own ideas and our own perspective. What God is telling Peter challenges Peter's worldview. It's incredible how unwilling we are to put on the table things that we have believed in as they were true, but aren't. aren't. Doesn't matter where you're from, we all pick up baggage that we embrace while growing up that is, that's not actually godly not actually the gospel, and God wants to change it. We all, we, all, we all have that. We all come to the text with our own cultural values sometimes, and we impose that on biblical text. Again, if you look at Acts, here we go. You're gonna see in Acts chapter 10, 11 through six, it says, and, and saw the heavens opened up, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. 
In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This, is, this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Look, look at his response. I love it. Peter says, no, 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 no. All my life, this is the way I've done it. All my life, I've been a good boy. I've done it the right way. Three different times he has to hear uh, the Lord's words. And, and here's what I know. Listen, when God repeats himself, we better pay attention. When God repeats himself, we better pay attention. There are a lot of things in God's words, word that he repeats over and over and over and over and over again, and yet we fail to apply it to our life over and over and over again. Man, when God repeats himself, we better pay attention. Maybe there are some rough edges in your life that the Spirit of God is trying to sand off and smooth out. Some of us, maybe we're a little stubborn, he has to repeat these lessons over and over. Pay attention when God has to repeat himself in your life. Go back to Cornelius' example and say, okay, Lord, what is it? What is it that you're trying to say? And I think we've gotta be aware of, of two things, I would say here. First of all, we have to be aware that when our preferences cross paths with God's plan, we must submit to his will. Okay, I'm gonna say it again. When our preferences cross paths with God's plan, we must submit to his will. God tells Peter, Peter, don't you dare call something that I've made common. Don't you dare do that. And I, I'm, I'm telling you, church, I don't think that's a message just for Peter. <laughs> By now, Peter's supposed to start getting the message. He's supposed, to, he's supposed to go tell Cornelius, which ends up being a message he needs to hear himself. <laughs> and then in Acts 17 through 23, there's some important things for us to note, too. It, it's really easy when you read the first couple of verses to come to the conclusion that Cornelius is... He's the lead actor in the story, right? And then all of a sudden we read the second section and we come to the conclusion, no, wait, maybe it's Peter. Maybe Peter's the main character in the story. Maybe he's the lead actor. And I'm telling you, neither of those is true. It's the Holy Spirit who's the lead actor in the story. It's the Holy Spirit. It's God himself who is orchestrating these people to come together for a very specific reason so that Peter could learn a lesson and so that the gospel could be advanced. Listen for God to speak when things may not be clear. Peter had to make a decision. He had to get up, he had to go downstairs. You and I sometimes, there may be a disruption in our life and we're listening for God to speak and we reach a point of decision. How do you know when you've made the right decision, by the way? And this isn't a trick question, it's an honest one. How do you know when you made the right decision? I'll give you the answer after you make it. After you make it. Because walking by faith is acknowledging I've got to take a step and trust what God is doing in this moment without any full assurance of what comes next. That's faith. So listen to me. Sometimes understanding comes after obedience. All right? Sometimes understanding comes after obedience. Understanding only comes after you obey. Understanding only comes after obedience, which is why I think Proverbs chapter 3, uh, verse 5 through 6 rings so true, right? A lot of you guys are familiar with this. This was one of the very first passages of the Bible I memorized because of the band Imperials. How many of you remember the Imperials? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> this was one of those songs. Trust, 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. You guys remember the song I'm talking about? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Then the steel drum's kicking. Nope, nobody, okay. It's okay, it's a cool song, Google it. <laughs> or another translation, it, it says this, he will make your paths straight by acknowledging him along the way. So it's in that verse that brings up this other idea of direction, of moving. When God speaks, he opens the doors for the gospel to be shared. So when we begin to see part of the reason why, why all this happened in, in Acts chapter 10, 23 through 33, we, we finally start to see why some of this is happening. See, this is that moment in my mind, it's, it's as if two men on either side of the mountain started digging a tunnel and through that exact science, or in this moment, through the act of a supernatural God, broke free at the same point. God led Cornelius on this journey that was led by a supernatural message. God led Peter on his journey led by a supernatural message so that just the right time their paths would cross, so that Peter could understand more fully the gospel, and so that Cornelius and all of his household and all of his friends could hear the gospel. And we're gonna see next week when we continue through the second act of Acts 10, we're gonna see how they respond because it's, it, this is kind of part A to this amazing story. It was as if Peter and Cornelius had come together. It was as if two men on either side of the mountain had tunneled together at just the right time. See, in this moment, we see that Cornelius had the confidence. We see that in verse 24, that God had a message for him. He had so much confidence that Peter was gonna show up and that he would have a message. He called all of his family and all of his friends. You guys have got to be in this room to hear this because I don't know what it is, but there's a word coming from the Lord, so we all gotta be ready. Cornelius had confidence, and then Peter had courage. We see that in verse 28, that Peter, Peter had courage to step into something. He had the courage to step into some, some things that were unknown and just trusting one step at a time when the Lord was telling him to do, to do and, and that he, this is what you need to do and that I'm gonna make your path straight. That's why he says in verse 29, so when I was sent for, I, I came without objection. I want you to notice this, that Peter's attitudes and beliefs they were passed down to him over many generations. All of these things that the Holy Spirit had to come overcome. The hardest thing about being a missionary, 10 years as a missionary, I married a missionary kid who knows nothing but the life of missions and, and living in different cultures. The hardest thing for a missionary to do is lay his own culture aside. Lay down all the things that he's learned. And it's like this, it, it's a very humbling experience because you have to realize, wow, some of what I've learned is just culture. Some of what I've learned is just my personal preference. Peter's attitudes and his beliefs, they were passed down to him over many generations. But listen, Jesus' calling was bigger than any of that. Now, is that true of you? Is that true of me? doesn't matter if your past is filled with great memories or painful ones. You've inherited attitudes and habits that need to change. And as the Bible shows you new ways to think and feel, how are you going to respond? Now, Cornelius' first response is to bow down to worship Peter. And Peter says, no, 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 no. No, don't do that. Because listen, God may use people, but people do not possess power. All right? And God has a habit of using people, but people do not possess power. Who's the lead actor in the story? The Holy Spirit. And I think it's important that I pause here and I get, a real, I get real personal with you. Can I do that? I have always been a pastor that has been very transparent with you. 
never tried to hide my weaknesses. I, I have no problem sharing them. I'll, I will say this, that New Heights Church, I believe, is in a historical season. I really believe that, and I need you to know this, and I need you to understand this. I love God so much. I love my family, and I love you. But I need you to know that I am just a man. I will let you down. I'm not worthy, I'm just a man. I'm a fallen man, I'm not worthy for this, but I'm called, and I'm willing. And so I just need you to know that I'm not a superhero, I'm just a fallen and broken vessel being restored by God every day because that's what God does. We're all that, right? That's all of us, right? I mean, that's your story too. You need to know that I'm gonna do my best to live out this priority, that my relationship with Jesus will always come first. And I need to understand that about you as well. God's brought us together in this time, in this season. God brings his church together, people from different backgrounds with different gifts, people from different cultures. You are not an accident that you are here. God has sent you to New Heights Church for such a time as this. He has sent you to Fairfield, Ohio for such a time as this. Just like he called me and Liz in Bangkok, Thailand to come to Fairfield, Ohio. Just like he's called you guys. Some of you, a lot of you are brand new in the last few years and some of you have been here for years. It's not an accident that you're here. God is doing something in our church. It is a new historic season and we have got to remember that we are all just men. God possesses the power. You don't possess the power, I don't possess the power. This is all about Jesus. All about Jesus. And in our text today, they were all to hear from God, and, and I love it. These, these, these people come together. Peter says, don't bow before me. I'm just, I'm just a man. Don't, don't come to me. It's Jesus. And in our text today, we see all of these men, they come to hear from God. And I pray that's the attitude of our heart every day in our lives individually. Every time we gather as a church, we come expecting to hear from God. You've got a word for us, God, and we want to hear it because we know that you're speaking through your word. And by the way, this is why we preach the Bible, because I've got nothing good to say to you if it doesn't come from this book. Now, God, you speak through a whisper and you speak through wise counsel. So as we come to church and we come together in the presence of God, we are ready to listen, to speak to us. And as I close today, I'll invite the worship team back up because we are going to take communion together. I can't think of a better text than to take communion. Because what's the big idea here in this passage? That God shows no partiality. That we should not dare call common which, which, that which he has made. Listen to me, New Heights Church. The image of God is all over this text today. God's dealing with two totally ethnically, socioeconomically, and academically different people. God chose a, a fisherman, Peter, and an educated guy, the PhD kind of guy, Cornelius, and they both need to hear the same message. And is that all people? That's all people, regardless of race, culture, education level. All people are made in the image of God. All people. That's why it doesn't matter who walks through the doors of this church. I don't care if they're Latino, Asian, African American, European, young or old. We might even have people in our church who have had a past or are currently struggling with anger, alcohol, porn addiction. Uh, struggling with same-sex attraction. And I'm here to tell you that you were made in God's image and there is a better life for you in Jesus Christ. And we're gonna love you. We're gonna love you, but we are also gonna challenge the sin that destroys you and separates you from God. 
by God's grace, we're gonna point you to the fact that Christ's love is sweeter and better, and we're gonna love you through this slow process called sanctification, because we are all, all created in God's image. And if we know this, then why in the world is there so much distance and there is so much division? Why can't the world just figure this out? And I believe our text, the light of God's image, gives us something beyond a moral argument, because the world's trying it. The world is doing everything they can to figure out how to bring people together. How can we bring people and gap this huge division? How can we bring cultures together? How can we bring races together? And guess what, they are failing miserably. It's not working. All we see today is discrimination, that's it. The fact that we see in this passage that we are all created in God's image, we're not merely a common accident, right, of the cosmos, it changes the way you view yourself, it changes the way I view myself, it changes the way we view each other. The fact that we were created in God's image shows us that we're valued and loved. But the secret lies in that, right? The value and the significance is, is not born out of you or me, or because we have it, because instead we, we, the value and significance comes from the amazing fact that God is our maker. God is our maker. The reason we're exhausted looking to be loved is because we place our value and significance in intangibles or created beings rather than in the creator. You hear me? But the fact that you, we're made in God's image, that frees us to love all people instead of living to be loved by all people. Do you see the difference there? Do you see what the power of the Holy Spirit can do? That's the only reason that when someone's discriminating against you, you can pray, God, forgive them. God, forgive them, because they don't know what they do. The only reason you could do that instead of retaliating is because you know that you were made in the sweetest love of all, God. You get that? This is important for us today. We need to hear what Cornelius and Peter needed to hear. They couldn't be any, any more different. Cornelius, a Roman centurion, Peter, a Jewish fisherman, and they heard what we need to hear today, that God makes no partiality. We are all created in his image. We are all beautifully and wonderfully made, and that shouldn't puff up our ego. It should humble us to love God and to love others. The fact that we are made in the image of God should lift us up from our mess and our sin and make us realize that we are loved by God of the universe and we are created for something better, for someone better, for Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Have you ever noticed that a mirror has no power to reflect anything unless there's light that, that hits it? Put yourself in front of a mirror in a dark room, you won't see anything. Even though you're right in front of a mirror, you're not gonna see anything. That's because the mirror in itself has no power to reflect. It has to first turn to the light in order to, to reflect, right? In the same way, we have no power to reflect in our own strength, but we were made in God's image. We were made to be God's mirrors. We were made to reflect the fact that he shows no partiality, and the only way we can do that is if we turn to him. It's the only way. So the motivation for New Heights Church to be diverse is not just because it's the cool thing to do right now. Because I'm gonna be really honest with you. It's a lot easier not to be diverse. Nope. The motive comes from the fact that humanity is made in God's image. The motivation comes because all people matter to God. Jesus is the perfect mirror of God. Turn to him and you're gonna reflect the Father. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes light. Isn't that what Ephesians says? Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. So I wanna close with this. When you really believe that, 
that we were all created in God's image, then you realize that to value others is to value God. To disvalue others is to directly offend God. Do you know who needs mercy? Europeans, Africans, Asians, Hispanics, rich, poor, young, old, fat, skinny, anything I'm missing? Everybody, everybody. Jesus said, God so loved the world. Are you willing to climb out of your shell to grow, to go, and to show? Because in our text today, the ancient wall had been erected between the two. It was a wall of religious and racial materials uh, mortared by traditions and conditions, and the Holy Spirit broke down that wall. You want to know what the power of Pentecost is? The Holy Spirit has the power to bring people from two different worlds and bring them together because there's something so much powerful. We have more in common than we do not in common. That's the power of the gospel. That's the sign that we are Pentecostal. That's the sign that we can come together, put our cultures aside, and come together as one church to glorify Jesus Christ, and that's gonna preach to this world more than anything I can do up on this stage. That's it. And I can't think of a better way to close out today's sermon by doing communion, right? We talked about the three tenses of salvation. I love this, because communion talks about all of them. The past, right, we're commemorating the past. The Lord's Supper refers to the last Passover meal Jesus had with his disciples here on earth. The time Jesus took the bread and the cup, he passed them around signifying that his body would be broken, torn into pieces actually, and that the shedding of his blood would usher in a new covenant. Jesus is doing, see I make all things new. That's what Jesus was gonna do. So the Lord's Supper, it makes us remember what Jesus did on the cross. That's why it says, do this in remembrance of me. Paul's stressing that we're, we are to always remember the atoning sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. We are to remember how he was flogged, beaten, and that he shed his blood to take away our sins. But it's also for the present, it's for right now. It speaks to the present, it speaks to our current situation, how we have fellowship with a living Jesus. We have communion with him now because our sins are forgiven. That's why we have communion with him. We can, we can have communion right now. We can have fellowship with him right now. But not just fellowship with God, but fellowship with each other. And then it talks about the future. Right? We're to continually observe the Lord's Supper till he comes. Therefore, this, this table, this, this practice, this what we do, it looks ahead to the return of Jesus Christ. It reminds us that Jesus is victorious and he's gonna set up his kingdom here on earth. And we're to proclaim the Lord's death through the observance of the Lord's Supper until he comes again in the future. It signifies the destruction of Satan when Jesus will return in victory. We won't be taking communion at that point anymore, by the way. We're gonna be at the banquet table and Satan will be defeated once and for all. We take communion because it keeps us focused on the cross. It draws us into fellowship with God and the body of Christ. It gives us the hope of the resurrection, the promise of victory over Satan and sin and the truth of heaven. That's why we do this today. And it humbles us every time we do it. We do it because the Bible tells us to do it. 
1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took the bread. Took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take this. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Will you take the bread with me? same manner he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death till the day he comes will you take this with me we pray with me father we do proclaim your death we proclaim your victory we we proclaim your promises in our life. You died on the cross and you rose again. And you offer salvation and the forgiveness of sins to any who would come to you by faith. God, today I wanna pray over this church, your church, New Heights Church, and all those that call this their church, all those that call you their Lord and their Savior. Lord, Will you help us do what we can't do? God, will you make this church a church of many different cultures, many different walks of life, people who are on the other side in all kinds of areas but can come into this place and we can all agree that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior and that he's coming back. Would you use this church in the way that we do community to preach to the world? Would you continue to humble each of us? Continue to speak to us, just like Peter, we are in the process of being sanctified. We are in the process of growing and we need to continue to grow. Would you keep us humble so that we can hear when you speak to us? When you say, hey, Justin, hey, Liz, hey, whoever, <laughs> I need you to change some things need your thinking to align more with what my word says. Would you take away all of our cultural preferences and may we submit to your will. And God, I pray for a spirit of unity in this church like there has never been before. Would you draw us together through the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish something so much greater than each of us. And I pray that your name would be glorified and that your your message, your gospel would be proclaimed. And I pray this in the powerful, mighty name of Jesus. And everybody says, amen.